The wheel of time turns and ages come and pass, leaving memories that become legend. Legend fades to myth and even myth is long forgotten when the age that gave it birth comes again. Welcome to Through the Glass Columns, a Wheel of Time read-along podcast. Each week, we will be reading, discussing, and digesting a small selection from Robert Jordan's fantasy opus. This quest is led by Tyler, a true Wheel of Time warrior. I have all stories, ages that were and that will be. And I'll be joined by Greg, a complete novice to the Wheel of Time. The Wheel of Time and the Wheel of a Man's Life turn alike without pity or mercy. Join us each week as we read the Wheel of Time in our own sweet time, traveling deeper and deeper through the glass columns. But what does that even mean? No, 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 no. no. You don't get to find out yet. (laughs) Hello, everyone, and welcome to Through the Glass Columns, your weekly Wheel of Time read-along podcast. I am Tyler, your Wheel of Time expert person who's read it a bit, someone who knows some things. And I am joined this week by Greg, who also knows some things, but maybe fewer of the things. Greg, how are you doing? I'm good. Uh, The wheel has not been turning in my favor for the last week. Had some rough stuff, nothing I couldn't surmount. So I'm very excited to not talk about real life and just dive into a little fantasy. Yeah, so given that you've had a rough time, I suggest that we dive right into chapter eight and how horrible of a time Rand seems to be having. (laughs) It'll give you a little bit of perspective. So chapter eight, The Dragon Reborn, begins with Rand nervously entering the women's quarters and approaching the Amerlin. A couple of things happen here. First off, Ingtar gives him some encouraging words and tells him Taishar Malkir. Um, And also there's a little bit of a controversy around him wearing his sword even this deep into the women's quarters very quickly however um he is escorted into the Merlin's rooms and is separated from lan who is told that moraine has a task for him once he makes his way deep into the uh Merlin's quarters there are only three people there moraine the Merlin herself and varin um it is actually moraine who begins speaking um and basically describes for the Merlin how rand got his sword and actually does so in a lot more detail than Rand himself knew describing some of the background of Tam and how who he was fighting for that we didn't know before um, at this point um, we learn that uh the Merlin is aware that Matt and Perrin are going with the horn or going after the horn, trying to seek the dagger. And as soon as he hears this, Rand immediately jumps in and says he is going to travel with them. Um, it's very clear that Moraine's plan is working to a T at this point. Um, and then they basically decide to turn it on his head, and he is told he is the dragon reborn, not a false dragon, the true dragon reborn. And Moraine tells him what she says is a true story about when she and the Merlin were novices, or actually accepted, she says, and they were working with the previous Merlin, as well as uh, Guitar Moroso, a Aes Sedai who couldn't see but sometimes had visions, and Guitara had a vision of the dragon being born on the slopes of Dragon Mount and then died immediately afterwards. And so Moraine says, since that day, me and the Merlin have been searching for a boy who was born on the slopes of Dragon Mount and was brought somewhere else in fulfillment of the prophecies, and Rand clearly seems to fit those prophecies. Um, Rand's primary response is simply to say, no, I won't be used, you're trying to use me, 
I need to leave. And essentially they tell him, this is your destiny. We're not going to do anything. Go. He leaves the room. And then we get what I think is actually a really nice, like, three-paragraph POV from Moraine's perspective where we kind of get a little bit of a debrief and we see a scene where Varen basically says, we might need to still him. Oh, wait, we can't. We then go into Nynaeve's point of view. Um, Nynaeve is looking for Rand. She knows that the encounter probably hasn't gone very well. She doesn't find Rand. Instead, she finds Lan. They briefly rehash their kind of breakup slash can't be together. They talk a little Ooh. bit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, they talk about this briefly, and then two major things happen here. One, Lan gives his ring to Nynaeve, clearly showing that there is still some sort of affection there. And two, he refers to her as Mashiara, which is said to be both kind of a deep love, a lifetime love, but also a love that is lost. And as he walks away, Nynaeve turns around and Moraine is there, which is obviously the person who Nynaeve least wants to see. They verbally spar a little bit. Nynaeve does not come out well in any of those sparring and it clear it becomes clear that Moraine is basically trying to kind of manipulate her in some way or get her ire up um, for one reason or another I don't think her motivations are entirely clear um, finally we go into Egwene's point of view she is summoned from her rooms because Rand is creating a disturbance trying to get into the women's quarters um, she has a brief conversation with a couple of the people who are guiding her about whether or not she's going to marry Rand and whether or not uh he can find a good wife who can kind of break him. Um, and eventually Egwene and uh, Rand have a brief conversation where it becomes clear he basically wanted to say goodbye and is worried about her. Um, and as he tries to kind of give her advice and protect her, she kind of says, look, I can stand on my own. Um, and as they leave, um, his kind of closing remark is to demand that she not be a member of the Red Aja. And I think that's a little bit telling. And so that's the end of the chapter. We have three POVs. A lot of interesting things happen. I kind of think it's going to be a high plot, low discussion. But <laughs> given that we have kind of three different scenes here, I'm curious on a first read, what stood out to you? What were the big takeaways from uh, this section of the book? Boy, yeah, I was thinking and no offense intended. I was like, man, this is a long summary because you're right. It's just a lot to to get through. So um there aren't many moments I like in The Phantom Menace, but there is one moment I like in The Phantom Menace, which is when uh, Queen Amidala finally reveals herself and to Boss Nasty. She's like, no, I'm the real queen. And my moment that I like is when Qui-Gon turns to Obi-Wan and gives him a look like, yeah, it wasn't fooling us. Like we we knew the whole time. Like it wasn't like, and, and I always just like that because it felt like the audience. And so I bring that up not as a complete non sequitur, but to say that's how this moment, this big moment with Rand kind of like, what? Moraine knows like yeah. my secret. He, she knows all these details. It's like, yeah, buddy, she, she knows. And, and, you know, I think we've talked before about not necessarily you, but people who don't love Rand. Um, and I think moments like this kind of make him feel a little foolish and a little dopey. Yeah. Now I'm, I'm a consumer of stories. So I know that's probably deliberate so that he can turn into something greater and can, you know, prove his difference by being in similar situations. But uh, I really had a lot of that feeling like, you know, finally Rand is figuring out, yeah, everybody knows your BS. <laughs> and it, 
it, it is through with it. Yeah, and I think this is uh, actually right before we came on air. I mentioned something that I don't know if I have said on this podcast. Man, I hate the first half of this book. If we were <laughs> to split this book into halves and split the first book into halves like they did in the young adult edition, the first half of The Great Hunt is my least favorite Wheel of Time book. The second half, yeah. it redeems it. It's not the worst, but... This exactly right here is why is because Rand is a narrator who is really great when Rand is the center of the chapter because always interesting things are happening to him and he's a character who reacts well when he's the center of the story. Rand doesn't pay attention to other people in the way that he needs to for us to be able to kind of get everything we want out of some of these scenes and in the first book, that feels like something that we kind of grow into, and it's almost a mystery of how much are we getting and how much aren't we. By the time we are 900 pages into this series, I am just ready for Rand to notice things. Please, hmm. please, rant over. You can talk about something. Well, else. I was just going to say, it I, It also just connects back to, we talked a lot in our first couple episodes this, se this season about like, yeah, the job of book two is to remind you in case yeah. you missed the first book, what you missed. And, and it feels very much in that vein while doing what we said before, which is sprinkling in a few more details and clarifying yeah. a little bit more. Um, you know, I think the best kind of answers to questions are always ones that leave questions still lingering or create new yeah. questions. And so it, it's definitely doing that. But I will say, um, you know, what I said right before we got on air is I was shocked on my uh, app that tells me the percentages that we're like a quarter of the way through. And I'm yeah. like, this this feels like throat clearing, <laughs> right? Uh, mm -hmm. uh, I think I shared before, that's what my meanest dissertation chair writer wrote about something I'd written. She like marked a paragraph. She's like, this is just throat clearing, get rid of it. But it does. So I like to wield that back at people, but yeah. it, it does feel a little bit like, yeah, we're, we're just waiting for the real story to begin. Um, and, you know, the second chapter here, leave takings kind of feels like, all right, now it's on. And that's not to say anything's been unimportant, but yeah. Uh, 200 pages of throat clearing is is a big ask. So I certainly understand, or I assume I understand the kind of emotions you have in response to this. Yeah, you heard most of them. Uh, I feel about the first half of this book the same way I do about Avatar 2. And if you've been listening, <laughs> you know what that means. Um, best, in... best picture nominee, Avatar 2? Oh, interesting, interesting. Continue. Oh, that hurt. Um, <laughs> I kind of have two big moments that jumped out at me in the Rand POV section, and then just a lot of really small character things. So um, I think we take the, the big moments first. Um, so... The first of these is mostly recap, but includes a few new interesting details. It's Moraine telling the story of Tam and Tam's sword. And I thought we got a couple of interesting moments here. The one that jumped out to me just as a small detail was when Moraine says that he fought for Ilian against Tyr. The Merlin seat immediately is like upset. She almost like makes a noise. This is, I think we've gotten a hint once earlier in the book. She is from Tyr. So it's clear that those allegiances still ring true. That's what as a longtime reader jumped out at me in this section. What is a first timer struck you as like newer interesting amidst the things that we had already known? Uh, I was interested in the fact that, um, Rand's, uh, now I'm not sure I have this right. Rand's mother is from Camelin. His, 
actual yes. mother. And I don't mean or, to deride an adoptive mother like that, but his birth mother. We don't know that, I don't believe. Oh, okay. I don't know why that's in my notes then. Maybe I made that up or it's tied to that. Um, so, and then the infant boy, come, so so Tam claimed the infant boy on his adventure. Yes. And that is Rand and Correct. brought Rand back and raised him in uh two rivers with his adopted wife and that is or, correct sorry yes. his actual his wife, wife Rand's adoptive mother yeah correct um and so some of those details were neat but really what stuck out to me is um how forcefully Rand rejected the dragon reborn title yeah. and I believe the language used is that um he will not be leashed and to yeah. have that be his initial reaction very much felt kind of dark sidey to me. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, again, to draw, draw a reference, it felt like when Harry Potter is uh, being controlled by kind of the, the piece of Voldemort in him and he doesn't quite recognize it. Right. It's like there's something that has awakened in Rand that is outside his control and his his greatest fear is to be leashed. That doesn't sound like two rivers Rand that we met who had no sense of any of this. Right. It sounds like a different Rand. Yeah, and I think this is actually either exactly mirroring language that Beelzeman had used in the previous book or very, very similar to it. He was the one who I think put the idea of false dragons being used by the White Tower into Rand's head. And so this is, I think, rephrased or kind of put through Rand's filter. But that, I think, is maybe even the origin of this idea. So when we're talking about that, like, link to dark side Rand, I think that is both metaphorically and literally true in terms of the language that's being used here. Um, I think it is also the first place that we see Rand deviate from land script, right? Because mm. for the most part, up to this point, Rand had been doing the Camelin bow or had been doing the warder salute or kind of the traditional responses. And this is the first time that I think the Merlin and Moraine are able to get him off script. And it's interesting. What he goes to is immediately I read as kind of like a very like stubborn insistence. That is the definition of a two rivers trait, right? If we're talking oh, okay. about his, you know, traditional upbringing versus, you know, his, his birth, Mm. It's it's his upbringing that is showing up here. We see multiple times in the next section, both Nynaeve and Egwene thinking about how stubborn Two Rivers men are. That's what we see out <laughs> of Rand here. Yeah, yeah, I that makes sense to me. Now, here's something I I need you to explain. the The Amerlin seat is very clear that the Sidene and the Sidar are very separate kinds of power. Yes. So here's my interpretation. Correct me. We are meant to understand in the black and white cookie image that these are complementary styles of power. You taught me, God, twenty five episodes ago, probably however many we've done to really be clear on the fact that the the Sidene and the Sidar are not a yin-yang in that they don't have the center of one color and the other color. So uh, that kind of came to mind. And so the idea here that he can't be trained by them, whatever his power is, because they have no understanding of their power. And so yeah. even though his powers themselves are manifesting in ways that are familiar, we need to make sure we understand that he's totally outside of the Aes Sedai. Is that all accurate? 
Yes, that all sounds 100% correct. Um, this actually brings up uh, something that is not super important to the question you just asked, but it's just a wonderful <laughs> moment for me. Um, in that discussion, we get, I think, the really great metaphor that continues to be used repeatedly is, you know, fish can't teach birds to swim, birds can't teach fish to fly, right? Even though they are seemingly related skills, and even though each of them has these ingrown abilities that almost look the same, they very much are not. Um, my favorite moment in this sequence, however, is Varen's response of, well, I don't know if you've heard, but there are definitely some birds that can swim and some fish that can fly. <laughs> so it's a bad metaphor. And if you're not going to be that pedantic, what is the point of being the academic Aja? I love me some Varen in that moment. Um, yeah, it's great. Everything you said is correct. I just love the pedantry around it. Um, was there anything else in that discussion that stood out to you? The next big moment that I had circled was the reveal of the prophecy that the Amerlin and Moraine had overheard in their youth. Was there anything that you had other than that as kind of big moments? Um, I just, maybe this is not the place for this, but just because it's at the top of my notes and I don't want to forget to mention it. I believe last episode we were tracking colors that we'd followed, uh, yeah. for the Aja and just in the very opening of the chapter before this scene actually begins, we did get white and yellow. We're walking around yes. as well. So we've collected a lot of colors now. I think um, we are up to six. Okay. All right. So, so in passing before that, okay. and then I have in big, uh, all capitals born to unite mankind which i believe is part of the prophecy right uh that sounds accurate i don't have all the snippets of prophecy in front of me but yeah i'll go with it <laughs> um the the interesting snippet of prophecy while we're kind of on these you know little hints that moraine is dropping the one that jumped out to me um was the discussion of i think the phrasing is something like born of the ancient blood and raised by the old blood. And I think that mm -hmm. that is a really interesting poetry, but B gives us a little bit of a hint as to Rand's actual ancestry, right? We know Manethrin and the old blood. That makes sense. If we're thinking now, what is Rand's ancestry? We are looking for a civilization or a society that is older even than ancient Manethrin, right? So I think that gives us both the scope of how this prophecy kind of size, but also is just an interesting tidbit if we're thinking hints of, of Rand's parentage. Um, that's what I had from this section. He is born on the slopes of the Dragon Mount. Seems to be the next big thing to discuss. This is actually something <laughs> that I thought as you know was an interesting mystery in the previous book. We had kind of been asking ourselves, why is Moraine so sure? Why was she looking in the two rivers? What was she looking for? Right. Those were all kind of open questions, assuming she is telling the truth here. And I see no reason to believe that she isn't. This answers all of those questions. Um, did this seem as big of a moment to you as it did to me? I found this to be the most compelling part of this entire chapter. Um, it certainly felt the most mythic, right? And, uh, you know, I actually, my mind mostly went to Oedipus first, where the baby was thrown out on the, or supposed to be thrown out on the side of the mountain to prevent the future yeah. that, you know, was was prophesied and then um the you know the shepherd took mercy on the baby and raised it and so on so it felt very much like it was channeling a lot of that kind of ancient western uh mythology type yeah. stuff um and you know I, I think you're right and also just the key to say okay we we knew the focus was always on 
boys about this age in this region. So now we get the clue of why and how those kind of breadcrumbs led Moraine to that point. Yeah, and I think that this actually lends some context to a line that we have been dissecting a little bit throughout the series. I think it was in like the second or third chapter when we very first meet Moraine. Her introduction is to say that she is seeking ancient stories. Mm, right. She is just not in the way that everyone assumes, right? She's not <laughs> looking for the story. She's looking for the literal story born. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's, that's nice. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's pretty cool. Yeah, the, the other interesting little bit of poetry that we get in this section that I think works really well is the reveal that Rand was born on his own grave, right? Oof, dragon yeah. Mount is both where the original dragon died and where the dragon reborn was reborn, which is just a fun little bit of cyclical time in a series that is all about cyclical time. And it, and it, you know, I I don't think this is literally true, but just because of of how much is cyclical here, it makes this feel like a fulcrum, right? Like this is yeah. the spot that everything is spinning around. Um, you know, I I picture almost like a uh, a gyroscope, right? Kind of wobbling yeah. around a single point like that. Um, and we know this is a giant mountain, so that helps with that imagery, right? So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. As far as the rest of this Rand POV section, the only other note that I have is there's an interesting quick moment where after Rand gets angry, he performs the flame in the void and all three of the women in the room seem to immediately take notice of it. The Merlin actually immediately asks, what is this? Did Land teach him this? And Moraine's response is no, he got it from his father, which I thought was mm. a really interesting moment, both to see him doing that thing he learned from his father and to recognize everyone in the room realizes something changed about him the second he did the flame in the void. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, really the, the last kind of feeling I left this chapter with, um, so much of the first book was spent with everybody saying like, watch out for the eyes to die, watch out. They manipulate you. And I think that message finally landed with Rand and he was, yeah leaving this encounter really afraid of that manipulation and sensing the coming of that manipulation. And I think that leaves him in a very interesting spot because, you know, um, that's, that's good. We want him to be more aware and more careful, I think, yeah. um, you know, of, of getting manipulated into a bad situation, but it just puts him on his own. And this doesn't seem like a character that could do well on his own. So I'm curious to see how that, part of the story continues when we've left him. And I know we get another little piece of that here. Well, and I think that what's really interesting about that kind of read is that Rand is finally kind of getting to the point where he is reading the manipulation and recognizing the manipulation. And it's happening just as Moraine is turning the corner of, okay, I know he's going to be suspicious of me, so I'll <laughs> let him go on his own, right? Yeah. He is both growing up and doing so at a pace that is outstripped by Moraine's anticipation of his growing up. And that's pretty correct for a character like Rand. Um, <laughs> I think then we probably jump over into the naive POV. Um, so she is initially looking for Rand, stumbles across Lan, and we get a Robert Jordan romance scene, which is a little rare. <laughs> As we saw in the last book, he kind of sometimes likes to tell us characters fell in love and not let us see it. Did this scene work for you or did it feel like kind of more recap like we had gotten earlier in the chapter? I think it worked for me better than just recap. Um, I, 
you know, I think Lan has grown a lot. Uh, the revelations about his lineage at the end of the last book and then his mentorship of Rand at the start of this book, both of those are things that tend to make me like a character. Like there's there's a mythic touch about him and just a mentorship. So, uh, so I think returning to the romance kind of with a better read on Lan and who Lan is um, made this more interesting to me, um, you know, and uh, then it just kind of felt like... Uh, Chekhov's ring. It's like, hey, yeah. this is going to be really important later. So we're going to have a scene where one is giving it to the other. Uh, he's giving the ring to her. She's saying, I can't take something like that and so on. Um, and the ring is how he would claim his power, as I understand it, right? It, it would at least be one of the major symbols, right? It's, yeah. it's one of those like lineal things that you would pass down, like the crown in many kind of Western societies. So, so again, I think that shows whether we sensed it early enough in the last book or not. If because uh, I, I think it's right to say, like, I was completely lost on the the romance till the end. So, so. were every reader that I have ever talked to. <laughs> um, so I think it's really interesting then that this feels like you know, um, a real moment for them, and it feels like it's a real deep abiding love. If we were tempted to write it off as, you know, just sharing tense leads to things. I think it's meant to be something greater than that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the interesting uh, thing that I want to know is actually for television show viewers. Um, mm. There is a word in this description that is, you know, uttered by Lan and then described in Nynaeve's POV, Mashiara. Um, you may not be familiar with that word from the television show, but if you have watched it, you are familiar with that word from the score of the television show. It is one of the few English words, or I guess, old tongue words <laughs> that are spoken in that soundtrack. Uh, so interestingly, beloved of heart and soul, but also a love lost referenced on the show, but never defined. Um, I think this is a really good scene. I think it works. I have very little else to say about it. There's a reason I don't review romance novels typically. Um <laughs> I suggest we then move on to what I find to be a much more easy to discuss scene, at least, which is Nynaeve and Moraine, more or less clashing and butting heads. Um, <laughs> I just, could we be any more terrible male hosts? It's like, skip the romance, on to the cat fight. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm okay we, with that reputation. We should invite a female co-host on from time to time. I'm sure we can find one in our, our lives. But uh, just want to, you know, if you can't be a better person, at least hang a light <laughs> lantern on the fact that you're a terrible person. So Fair enough. On, yeah. on to the fight. But I, I hear you. <laughs> um, I think what is interesting to me about this sequence is we are so commonly in the heads of characters when they win arguments that very frequently it feels like POV switches are almost there to give us both sides of the story, right? You get Nynaeve's side from Nynaeve's POVs and Moraine's side from Moraine's POV. And so I just want to, more than anything else, applaud the heck out of Robert Jordan for writing a Nynaeve loses every part of this argument scene from Nynaeve's POV. <laughs> I think it is really effective at highlighting... Yeah 
how she deals with pressure, how she deals with being contradicted, how she is interacting with the lack of power that she is feeling. Later on in the scene, we see her telling um, Egwene she no longer wants to be called Wisdom and how that interacts with this scene where Moraine pulls rank on her about seven times, I think is really interesting. That's the dynamic that excited me about this sequence. Um, I'm mostly saying this to distance myself from the word catfight, but also to see what your <laughs> response is to those thoughts. Yeah, I I think the the tone really made me think about just there's a real clear threat there, right? Like if, if I was to sum it up, it's like, you know, there's a real kind of harsh threat there, a tone that's not been present in this relationship. Yeah. And so to realize, I, I mean, there was never like, kumbaya, hug hands, hold hands and, and hug uh, attitude between these two. But it felt like it had chilled significantly. And certainly that makes sense given the way the stakes got raised, right? Like, so maybe the way to say that is like, we last checked in with them when it was like, kind of they respect each other, they're watching each other, but there are they have similar ends in mind. And now I think they're at different ends. And so that felt much more chilled and threatening yeah and i think it's interesting to kind of be tracking what is changing for each of these characters right because nynaeve i think is slightly colder than she was before but nynaeve was already planning on going to the one tower to spite moraine i think what's interesting here is how much moraine seems to have chilled on nynaeve right that bi-directionality of the hatred exists in a way that it didn't before um and I think it's actually interesting to think about that in light of the previous scene, right? Because we get this right on the heels of uh, Moraine probably overhearing at least some part of the end of the Nynaeve land conversation. And so for thinking about why Moraine may have kind of chilled on Nynaeve, that feels like a pretty reasonable culprit, right? Lan is, you know, kind of her loyal sidekick, if you will, for decades. And now to have that relationship threatened, I think kind of explains part of what you're observing here. So you're saying it's just a cat fight over a man. Man, this this podcast. Come on, Joe Rogan, get out of here. Get out of <laughs> here. Uh <laughs> uh. Yeah, I mean, and jokes aside, I, I certainly don't think the writing is uh, demeaning any of this in that way. But I think yeah. that is a complex relationship when you have a chaste relationship that is, you know, obviously very deep and very full of affection, but not any kind of, you know, romantic relationship. And then a romance enters their lives. I mean, that's that's yeah. a familiar pattern and, and only natural that that would be treated as a threat in itself, just in its existence. Yeah, absolutely. Um, That's what I got on this discussion, right? The only other moment yeah. that really jumped out at me is there is one moment where Nynaeve says uh, she's, she's trying to threaten Moraine again. And Moraine's response is, well, I know you're going to go to the White Tower because if you don't, you can't use it against me. And that reveal that Moraine is a step ahead of everyone, not just Rand. It mostly kind of reconfirms what we knew about that character, but I think it's an effective moment for saying just how much she knows that others assume she doesn't. Three-dimensional chess. Always, always. Four-dimensional chess now. I don't know. We we have so many dimensions, but yes, that Moraine is always ahead of everybody um, other than that key moment when the the old demon people showed up, but yes. yes. <laughs> uh I suggest we then make our way to the final section of this chapter, which is Egwene. 
there ain't much here in my book. Um, the two interesting things that jump out at me are Nynaeve telling Egwene to no longer call her wisdom and that kind of change in the dynamic between that two characters, which I think might be worth uh, looking into. And then the other is obviously kind of the last moments between Rand and Egwene. That parting, um, I think it works emotionally, even though there's not a whole lot to say about it other than, yeah, you can feel for those two characters in that moment. Um, was there anything else that stood out to you in, in this section? Uh, I would just make sure we compliment that tone because what you just said is a tricky thing. It would be really tempting to go to melodramatic goodbye forever. My one true love will never be, um, you know, some of the tension in that is already gone because we know from the prophecy that they're destined to never really be together. Yeah. Um, so it, it's kind of like this is just fulfilling that and, and moving them where they need to be. Um, but I would credit Robert Jordan in making it very teenagery, right? I mean, yeah. how many people go to on summer vacation not telling their crush they love each other and trying to say goodbye and I love you, but making sure you never say I love you. It just, you know, it's important to me as I read these characters and put my judgments on them to remember they're young and they're teenagers. And, and I think that's a, a trick of fantasy. Um, yeah. You know, I think we were recently comparing this to uh, the new Willow TV show, which which kind of shifted focuses to teens. And there's a way in which, you know, that show kind of elided the fact they're teens to almost just make them mythic instead of human. And so I appreciate that Robert Jordan is keeping the focus there. Um, no slight on Willow or some slight on Willow. I don't know. It's a random thing for them to have rebooted. And I'm not going to get over that, that whatever the quality of it is. So uh, <laughs> I, I think the only last note that I have here is that this, uh, the early part of this section with Egwene kind of highlights something that I find to be tedious in Robert Jordan's writing. Um, he loves to emphasize the stereotypes that genders have about other genders. The section where Egwene walks through the hallway and is being told about how men need to be tamed and we need a, you know. <laughs> it, and the thing that Robert Jordan does very, very effectively is that he has both men make incorrect stereotypes about women and women make incorrect stereotypes about men. I think he is trying to make a positive gender point about how no one should stereotype either gender and boy, do I not need to read a page and a half of Shinaran stereotypes about men to get that point across. <laughs> Fair. Fair. That's, that's, that's all I have. Um, I suggest we then jump into chapter nine, leave takings. In which leave takings. Leaves are taken. Um, <laughs> so Rand enters the courtyard. It is a buzz because both the group going after the horn and the dagger, as well as the Merlin's delegation, are both preparing to leave. Um, Rand recognizes a number of the people who are in the group going after the dagger, including Mazima and Uno and Ragan, all of whom are people who we've interacted with at one point or another um rand then tries to apologize to matt and perrin he gets an apology out but they more or less ignore him um rand then learns that loyal is also coming along with them he wants to see the story and then very quickly um lan kind of makes his way over and immediately gives him some quick advice about sheathing the sword basically a technique to potentially be killed but also kill whoever you are fighting um at this point uh agelmar 
is trying to convince the Merlin kind of across the way to stay for another night. But she says, no, she will not. And then approaches the group who is going after the horn, attempting to kind of give them a blessing and send them along their way. She gives them a brief speech and then approaches the group further. At this point, an arrow flies past both her and Rand, killing someone else. Um, everyone assumes that the arrow was intended for the Merlin seat, but both Rand and her quickly realized that the arrow was actually intended for him, and he barely ducked out of the way in time to save himself. Um, after a quick kind of commotion and someone trying to find the archer but realizing they have already been killed, uh, the Merlin sends them along their way. They get on their horses, they depart, and it is at this point that they meet Hurin, the sniffer who is going to be leading them along the path. It turns out he can smell evil and violence, and so they will be following the Trollocs that are traveling with Padden Fane. Um, the reason he wasn't with them before is because they were concerned the Red Aja would have concerns about Hurin's ability. Um, after this, we then jump into Bail Domon's POV. Um, not sure if the, you even pinged on this. Bail Domon was the captain of the ship that Tom, Matt, and Rand were on as they were going down the river in the first book. Ah. Um, Bail is in Ilion, where they are celebrating the launch of the Great Hunt for the Horn. There are people celebrating and partying. He eventually makes his way to an inn, where he is meeting with a businessman from Carrion who has a proposal for him. Um, that businessman offers him a thousand gold pieces to go to the kingdom of Mayenne pick someone up there and bring them back to Ilion. Um, he is offered, I think it is 200 gold pieces up front and the rest upon return. Uh, Bail Domon agrees to this, knowing that something is up because this is the like fifth different absurd offer that he has received in recent weeks. He then goes to his first mate, has them gather up the crew. Eventually, all of the crew except three make their way onto the ship and Bail Domon sets sail, choosing to head west rather Rather than east in order to avoid whatever it is that he is being guided into. It is at this point that he opens up the letter that he was given by his prospective employer, and it basically says, kill Bail Domon, someone will come and pick up his stuff, keep all of his money, and it is signed, the King of Carrion. Um, Bail Domon realizes that he is in deep trouble, and as he departs, he mount he talks about where he is going to be tra trading, and it is, of course, Toman Head, the place where everything seems to be headed in this book. So, this is an interesting chapter, I think, because it is both a bunch of the pieces shuffling in exactly the way we expected, and then something we didn't expect at all in a POV from a character that most people don't even remember was in the first book. So I'm curious what your reaction was to this chapter, because it really feels like two completely different scenes to me. Yeah, I, that would be my largest takeaway. I completely forgot that we met a captain before at all, let alone Baildoman. And um, so that was a really interesting interlude. And, you know, it, it felt to me like in Lord of the Rings when they're suddenly like, there are horse people here too. And it's like, yeah. oh, okay, we're, we need to expand this continent more and more and these peoples more and more. And so it felt like, okay, let's start to fill in some of the gaps over here. Now that does make sense now that you've reminded me that we've met him because so much of this is like, this boat is not meant for the sea. This boat should right. be on the rivers and so on. So um, 
Yeah. So I, I have a couple of thoughts on that second section, but I think I'll save them for the dedicated discussion on it. Um, I thought, you know, the first part, my first note is just like, oh, loyal. Like he is what yep. his name is, right? Like the fact that he's not going to hold a grudge. I was glad he's going to stay in the story. And I, I think that is a kind of good dynamic to have him with the the boys that are clearly holding a grudge and having some trouble. Yeah, and I think that for me, the best part of this section is Loyal's reason for going. It's not that he wants to be a part of the adventure or he wants to contribute or he wants to help. He just wants to see it. And that to yeah. me is just a really relatable impulse, right? I think Loyal is the like guy in all of us who just wants to cozy up with a book and read about history in front of a fire, <laughs> right? That's it's really yeah. relatable and I appreciate it. Um, in this early section of the chapter, I think we get Loyal's introduction and we also get the attempted apology with Matt and Perrin. Those two interpersonal moments, they exist in my reading of this book. They don't really do much for me. Um, I think you're right. It reads like a teenager and that is an accomplishment of Robert Jordan's. And that's why I don't have a whole lot to say about it. Was there anything <laughs> else in this early section that jumped out to you? No, I mean, I, only that, yes, Matt and Perrin hold a grudge. I think it's becoming more and more of an open question to me how much they're in control of their actions. Um, you know, I think I had hoped when um, Matt was cured by uh, Moraine at the end of the last book that he's kind of back to himself but it, now again, we have he's been hurt again. And then the dagger is such a part of that. It's like, well, you know, again, is this kind of something dark sidey where where he's not fully in control? Perrin, again, I always felt was getting good powers. But I think so many chapters between those wolf powers and now it's like everybody's worried about him. So I'm starting to take that message uh, right or wrong that that should be skeptical. So sure, bear a grudge, be teenagers, but are you actually choosing that is kind of where I ended up. Yeah, and I think that's a very reasonable question to be tracking as we go forward, right? Is what how much does it seem like they are behaving just like teenagers and how much does it seem almost that they are behaving too consistently to be teenagers, right? If they keep making the yeah. same decisions over and over, that's when I start to think it's got to be magic because there's no such thing as a, you know, consistent 18-year-old. Um <laughs> This leads us to what I think is a really interesting section in this chapter because it could have been in a previous chapter, which is Lan kind of abruptly arriving and giving the advice of the sheathing of the sword and then vanishing just as quickly. And to me, the fact that it does come so out of nowhere almost makes me think it there must be a reason why it was put here instead of in the mm. previous chapter when he is giving you know advice to Rand about how to behave around the Merlin or even in the first chapter when he's actually learning sword play so did this moment stand out to you in the same way that it did to me and if so do you have any thoughts on why it might need to be here I think my best guess on what I know is all the other advice Lan has given is like what you would say out loud. And this is what you would whisper. Right. And so I think maybe separating it off in itself is a way to put a little emphasis on that and to say like, okay, but this is off the books. Right. You know, like we're going to give the astronauts the proper briefing, but then tell them, but you do have a cyanide capsule. Should something, you know, go horrifically wrong or something like that. So um, I think this is not the message for public. And so it's meant to be like, just be prepared that this is part of what's going on. Um, I, the other explanation that comes to mind is if, you know, 
Moraine then told Lan he needs to share this bit or something like that might be a reason why he would come back and circle around to say it again. Uh, I don't think Lan is going to be in that space at this time. That's just my guess. Like, I think Lan is not quite the lapdog he was. That's not to say he's disloyal, but I think he is starting to see some holes in all of this. So. Yeah, and I think that's consistent with what we were observing in the last chapter with if potentially Moraine is, you know, even getting to the point of worrying about Land's loyalty in terms of, you know, being potentially territorial with, you know, him and Nynaeve or, you know, feeling like that relationship is, you know, in tension, that might kind of lend to some of what you're saying. Lan is starting to show some independence. He's starting to, you know, do things that Moraine might not entirely approve of, including potentially this sort of mentorship. So there may even be something there in terms of after, you know, he has debriefed with Moraine and learned how the encounter with the Merlin went, he might have, you know, some additional reason for giving this advice at this moment where he previously maybe wouldn't have felt like it was the appropriate time for it. Um, sort of wild speculation i think we are the next section is like the merlin gives a really long speech that doesn't really say much and then ran gets shot at by an arrow <laughs> um, i'm gonna borrow from your other podcast and just say this just needs to be a question who do you think shot the arrow <laughs> or who do you think um, planned the shooting of the arrow yeah i well, I think the purpose of the attempted assassination is to really show you that the Amarillan seat doesn't matter nearly as much as Rand anymore. And to kind of dramatize that, even though the rest, I mean, uh, Anglemar is still begging her to stay and things like that. So it's not like the rest of the world has shifted, mm -hmm. but clearly in the conflict to come and what matters, there's only one person there who really matters. And if you could, you know go yeah. back in time and kill baby Hitler, would you? Uh, so there you go. Uh, I immediately jumped to the uh, the sinister Aja, whose name I'm forgetting. The Black Aja. The Black Aja. Well, but um, sorry, that's not actually what I meant. The sinister Aes Sedai, who we suspect was one of the people in the prologue. Leand no, Leandrin, yes. Leandrin. Yeah. Um, Again, I'm not sure she shot the arrow, but um, we know right. she can manipulate people and change their actions. So I went immediately there that she's controlling that. Yeah, and I think that makes a lot of sense. We've seen in previous chapters that Leandrin was able to manipulate Lady Amalisa to get the servants searching for Rand. So it would make sense that she would also be able to arrange something like this. That seems like suspect number one. I am totally willing to go along with that. Um, I've got like six other pages of stuff with the Merlin talking to people do you have anything on it because i don't no uh i mean i think from that first half of this chapter where my notes immediately jump is just that i think this hurin is a really interesting addition to this yeah. mythology totally. and again we have somebody who has a power and we're told the Aes Sedai don't like or don't understand that power and so are suspicious about it um is that a Saidin Saidar thing or is it something else? Yeah. And I think that my impression of Hurin is kind of very much colored by the way that the people around him from Shinar react. Because if it was the Aes Sedai are really skeptical of it and the people in Shinar kind of see it as a necessary evil, I think I would have had a very different reaction than everyone in the party being like, no, why would anyone be upset about this? Sniffers are just sniffers, right? Yeah. And I, I think when something is integrated into a culture like that, it makes it feel 
like it doesn't need to be justified as good, right? It, it has that little bit of a lived-in feel to it that makes me just go, okay, if everybody's okay with it, I'm okay with it. Um, and I think that ties in a little bit to the way that we're thinking about Sidene and Sidar, right? The way that people react to Sidar, Aes Sedai, is very, very different than, from the way they're reacting to Sidene. And I think it's interesting to see that if we compare that to the way that the Aes Sedai are reacting to Hurin versus the way that Shinarans are reacting to Hurin, we kind of see what Rand is afraid of versus what Rand kind of is hoping for, I think. Yeah, the the other thing that comes to mind in all that you just said is one of the cool things about kind of modern Star Wars, and this is happening all over the place, is like, yeah, it's light side, it's dark side, but there are also just a bunch of people who sense the force and kind yeah. of have their own wacky religion around it or a culture that arises as part of that. And so I, I, I know that's not exactly what you were yeah. saying, but it kind of feels like that kind of thing. It's like, Oh, up here, we just have these people who can kind of use this power and we're just going to use it for our culture and our ends. Like we could use people to hunt down, to sniff out violence and threats. And so we're going to do that. And, we're not going to question it at all. So, so I think it does align with what you're saying, even though I, I think of it almost as like a separate thing from Sidene yeah. Sidar in some ways. Yeah. And I think it's interesting to think about this in terms of timing too, because if we're thinking about all of these different types of powers, right? Sidene and Sidar are ancient, right? They've been around since before the breaking of the world. On the other hand, if we're thinking about like Perrin's wolfiness, this was referred to as something that was old and left and now is recently back. It seems like sniffers are something that is not as ancient as Aes Sedai. They're not familiar with it, but it maybe isn't quite as new as Wolf Brothers that you know the wolves are remarking as this is brand new. It's finally back kind of. And so I think this is also something that Robert Jordan does really well. Um, in books like these, in any fantasy series, monumentous things happen. That's how epic stories work. And sometimes it always feels like it's cheating. It's like we had 3,000 years of history and nothing monumentous happened until now, <laughs> really. And I think Robert Jordan does a good job of buffering that by saying, no, no, no. There are all of these little mysteries around the world. And some of them have been around for 50 years. And some of them have been around for 100 years. And some of them have been around for 2,000 years. And that makes the things that are two months old not feel like they're cheating. And I think mm. that's really, really well done here, right? Uh, it it feels lived in. It feels like a part of the society. And so we're more willing to accept that weird stuff just pops out of nowhere sometimes. That's how the world works. Yeah. And, you know, other fantasy books kind of have like, well, this book has like the age of legends, but it's like we are entering the epoch of heroes or something like that. And and yeah. so it, it kind of comes up with a reason. But I think it it's better like you're describing that Robert George is just like, nope, these things are just coming back and they're just things that are around. And yeah. it's it's a world. And you maybe we are just getting it revealed bit by bit, but this is just the world as it has been here or is becoming here. Yeah, absolutely. Um that's what I got on this section. What are we becoming now that Bail Domon is a POV <laughs> character in The Great Hunt? I know you said before we got on air, this was kind of shocking to you that we spent this much time with this character. Um, what was just your takeaway from this section? It's very, very different from what we've had anywhere else in the book so far. Yeah, and I think that was a little bit shocking, and it unfurled a lot like a mystery story, right? Like, it's like... 
like Bale Doman, we could I could at least immediately figure out, okay, something sinister is going on here, but what is it exactly and what are the goals? Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I don't know that we need to parse out each clue and each detail, but it it essentially to me feels like there are a lot of details that slowly reveal everything was being manipulated to push him eastward. Yeah. Right. And to get him killed. And then he like hides, uh, he, he ignores all those or kind of fools us that he's following them and then shows that he's not following them and heads westward. Um, and this is all seemingly a manipulation to get one of the seals away yes. from him, which we know are, are keys to, to the dragon uh, reborn. And well, the uh, dragon, sorry, go for it. Do the, the correction. The dark one. So the dark there, one, yeah, the right. Seals to the dark one's prison is what he right. has one of. Yeah. Um, and so I left that chapter with the question in my notes. Again, I was preparing for my other show, apparently, which is like, did he just fall for a big reverse psychology trick? Because that's what it ended up feeling like to me right. that, you know, I think he got played. I think they knew the type of person he was and knew exactly how he'd react to all these different stimuli. And so they want it. And I mean, that that feels like me like being clever, but it's also like, oh, you mean they wanted him to go to the place where the climax of this book is definitely going to happen? Like, of course, that's pretty obvious. So that's kind of my my path through this chapter, I guess, for better or worse. Yeah, well, I think thinking about that kind of manipulation makes perfect sense, given what we witnessed in the previous chapter. Right. We literally saw Moraine in the Merlin seat be like, OK, this guy's going to reject any orders we give him. So let's not give him any orders. Let's just suggest some things that we know he'll want to go along with. Either Bail Domon has sniffed out someone's plan to do that or someone planned on Bail Domon sniffing out their plan for Bail Domon to do that. I think that to me, I am less convinced that this is necessarily a triple cross and I am more <laughs> very intrigued by who is trying to set up the double or triple cross, because to me, that's what determines whether I think they were trying to get him east or trying to get him west. Right. If I know motive, I can get to that answer. I think the quickest way to motive here is perpetrator. Right. So mm -hmm. do you have any thoughts about who might be manipulating Bail Domon to try to get the seal or is it at this point just a generic someone bad uh I went to the dark one in the cabal at the beginning of the book again because I think the book started there I'm gonna always go to them pretty quickly uh the other clue that they used a large amount of Tarvalon gold yes. right the the gold was stamped from there so it's like okay not the Aes Sedai because they make that the easy person to assume so I assume that's a red herring and it's got to be someone else so I went back to the dark one we know the agents were spread out and diverse. I think it's those agents are putting this plan together. And because I think those are stronger adversaries, I think that's why I'm leaning more towards he's doing exactly what they wanted him to do. They're smarter than him. And actually, in that response, you mentioned uh, the thousand gold pieces were Tarvalon marks. And I think this is interesting for two reasons. One is what you said. It's the hint as to, you know, who is doing the manipulation? Why are they giving these kinds of coins? The other thing that's interesting here is the reaction that Bail Domon has to seeing those coins, because he seems almost skeptical that Tarvalon coins are going to be either accepted 
accepted or at least be accepted without comment. And this is actually something that we've gotten uh, kind of minor references to a few times throughout uh, the first book as well as this one. Um, both of the kind of major southern nations, Ilian and Tyr, we've gotten kind of minor references at this point, maybe two or three times. Both of those countries have more of a prejudice against Aes Sedai than much of the rest of the world. So part of what's going on, I think, with those Tarvalon marks is also, if you just take a quick look at your map, if he is in Ilian and going to Mayen, the country in between there is Tyr. Having a thousand gold marks from Tarvalon might not be a good thing to do if you are traveling through that area. So that's kind of like a deep cut that we've gotten really minor hints at, but it, it kind of gives us a little bit of a hint that maybe the person was even trying to make things extra dangerous for them if he went east. Uh, I believe you are muted. Just my voice is silent now. Uh, the interesting in that, you know, so much of this chapter just feels like place setting, like especially because the first half is leave taking. It's like, well, where are we going and what other forces are we going to encounter? Let's start to set the table and, and start to build some of that. Um, so the fact that you're weaving into that, this idea that, um, you know, we should be conscious of the very different feelings towards Aes Sedai means so much of the second half of this book presumably is up in the air because we all the kind of landmarks that are familiar are being tested in so many ways. So I yeah. think that that to me is just generally exciting, even if it's disorienting to suddenly be in this character that we haven't thought about in a long time. Um, You know, I'm excited, right? It's It's again, it's building out more of this continent and more of these people. So. And I think at this point, we're kind of left with just yet another dangling thread that is pointing in exactly the same direction. So I don't have much else to say about like the plot or character development in this section. Bail Domon's fun. That's what I've got for you. I guess my question for you is we are now kind of hopefully approaching the end of the table setting in this book. <laughs> and what I find interesting about the table setting at the beginning of this book is often Robert Jordan, I find kind of builds a really um, kind of complex story about where we are going. And you've got to find, you know, what is the wheat and what is the chaff? And it's about, you know, puzzling out where we're going and what is happening. That is not what is happening here. He has given us 10 separate clues that all point in exactly the same direction. So as a first-time reader, I guess I'm wondering, has that been effective for you at building anticipation to wonder what is coming when we finally get to Falme and Toman Head? Or has it been more kind of, you didn't need eight times to get the reminder, you were already excited, <laughs> let's get there. Um, I think it's on the edge of becoming the latter, but I would say it's still the former for me. Um, you know, I think it makes me anticipate a singular climax where we talked a lot during book one. It's like, I don't actually know where this is going. Is this a battle? Is this a thing? And this is making me anticipate much more like a big battle or political court scene or something like kind of really dramatic um is coming and and you're right and, and i have hit this lord of the rings comparison a couple times but it's very much like two towers where you're like oh they're going to helm's deep and they're going to helm's deep and gandalf's going away to bring some people to helm's deep yeah. and all of that just starts to feel like like we get it like the end of the book is going to be an awesome battle at helm's deep um and i think i have that right that that's the book and 
to it, not just that the is movie. Correct, yeah. Yeah, but it's it's very much the movie as well. Like they, it, they really build that. The, the battle is a much bigger deal in the movie than in the book, but it's also yeah. a giant deal in the book. Yeah. Yeah. So it feels much more in the spirit of that versus kind of a fellowship. Let's just see where this goes. And so um I think that's helpful in second chapters. Um, I think you can be a little more meandering and then yeah. You know, you want to prove to your readers that you have a clear plan and you have clear directions. And I feel like that's where we're headed here. So uh, I'm for it. I'm I'm very excited. And, um, you know, uh, behind the scenes, we've, we've kind of accidentally taken a break uh, in our recordings and fallen off. Um, so this, you know, this was a good talk to kind of remind me, oh, yeah, I am really excited about this. And I want to keep reading and dive back in and, and keep going. So um, we know it was a lot. To read this time around, as we said, this was our longest uh, and it, particularly, you know, I would I would say my reaction to these two chapters is that they were good, but there was a lot in them. Um, yeah. And it almost felt to me like Robert Jordan was saying, like, all right, let me just knock the rest of this out of the way and then we can we can move on. So I'm I'm very excited. It does feel like we uh, have walked out of a gate and we're headed in other directions. So I will just do the the business and say that next time, of course, we go on to two more chapters. It is chapter 10. The hunt begins and chapter 11 glimmers of the pattern. It's um kind of solid middle of the road length at least in my edition it's it's not short and it's not long so uh, it should be kind of your standard episode of the show uh, and i'm going to turn it over to the expert to close us out yeah i think all that i have left to say other than echoing greg's i'm very excited to get done with this section of the book is to say that i think that this is really when the series starts to build up a little bit of momentum so if you've kind of been on the fence if you're like i kind of liked the first book i'm not quite sure now is the time to give it another 150 pages because it is about to pick up. We are going to get there. And if it doesn't grab you, it's not for everyone. We are. We're awesome. The book might not grab you. And hopefully it will next time through the glass column. So ends another episode of Through the Glass Columns. We thank you for joining us and continuing with us on our quest to cover all of the Wheel of Time in our own sweet time. This podcast features original content developed by Tyler Orm and Greg Cass, and is not in any way affiliated with, associated with, or condoned by the Robert Jordan Estate, Tor Fantasy, or Amazon. All content is intended for entertainment and educational purposes only. If you're enjoying this podcast, please seek out the books from your local bookshop or library and join us as we continue our journey. If you'd like to contact us to share your thoughts or give feedback, you can email us at throughtheglasscolumns at gmail.com or find us on Instagram and Twitter by searching Through the Glass Columns. Thank you once again for being part of this community. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe to the show, leave us a review wherever you're listening, and recommend this show on your social media to help us grow our community. We look forward to welcoming you back next time Through the Glass Columns.